2 Timothy, and we are now in chapter 2, just the few, first few verses of chapter 2, 1 and 2. <clears throat> and if you were with us last week, you might remember as we wrapped up chapter 1, Paul essentially laid out before Timothy two ways to live, two paths, very clearly in that text, the path of desertion, shameful desertion, we see that with Phygelus and Hermogenes, and then the path of devotion, spirit-empowered devotion with Onesiphorus. So we're kind of continuing to talk about that today as Paul really presses into the desertion aspect and how we're to respond. But we will only cover the first two verses uh, tonight, and then next week we'll pick it up, verse 3, and continue with that same idea. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So let's give thanks to our God for his word. Heavenly Father, we are supremely thankful for your word because we know, Lord, that it has been breathed out by you. And your word reminds us that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts now so that we can receive your teaching with joy, your correction with humility, and your training with thanksgiving in order that we might be more and more each and every day conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and by the power of the Spirit. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin tonight by asking you to use your imagination for a moment. This won't be too hard. It's not too unrealistic as you'll see. Uh, but I want you to imagine that tonight California passes a new law which makes it now illegal to speak out against homosexuality and transgenderism. I told you it's not that hard to imagine, right? <laughs> you can see that happening very clearly. So they, they, they pass this law, and then anyone who speaks out against these things and calls them sinful or unnatural or even just evil will be guilty of hate speech. And they will be arrested immediately, and they will go to court, and if they're tried and convicted of hate speech, then they will uh, have time in prison, perhaps if they continue to preach out against it and speak against these things, then they would face life in prison or even the possibility of death. That's probably the biggest stretch in California. They don't put anybody on death row. But, but we know how the law works here, and I hope you can at least imagine the situation. And so my question then for you, if, if that scenario happens tonight, what do you think the church would look like tomorrow? What do you think the church around this area or in California in general would do? I imagine that some churches would probably come out right away in support of the law, saying, you know what, this law is a great thing, it's so helpful for the church because this will allow us to love people more like Christ. He loved the people that nobody else would love, and we're just going to love them as they are and not call their, their sin, sin. They won't even use that word. 
I imagine some churches would probably even publicly repent and, and recant of them doing that and vow never to call these things sin again. And my guess that many churches, probably even most churches, would probably kind of play it safe. We try to fly under the radar and not get noticed after a while. Maybe some would go online and edit old doctrinal statements or old sermons so that, they, so that nobody can go in their past and say, look what you did, and they would bring that up and, and bring it to a court and get them in trouble. Or at least they would say, well, you know what, at least for the future, we'll just plan on skipping certain areas of the Bible that talk about this stuff. So we won't have to take a stand. We won't get into trouble. That will allow us to love people as much as we can. I know we can come up with excuses like that. Now I hope if this situation really did happen here, that Sovereign Grace, this church, and even other local churches would continue to fight against evil like this, would, would not even hesitate to share the gospel and to call these things sinful as the Bible calls them. I have no doubt in my mind that Chad would probably be one of the first people arrested in Bakersfield. He seems to want to speak out against these things a lot and be the first one there, and I could totally see that. And I'm sure many others would follow. Perhaps all of your pastors would be arrested or other local pastors as well. But I'm also sure that if this were to happen, there would be a lot of saints that would scatter. Even probably pastors. Many may abandon the faith to avoid prison time, to avoid life in prison or death. And I'll bet some would even turn on the church, turn in a way and start slandering its leaders and causing them, or calling them spiritual abusers because they speak out against sin like this. I'm sure some would actually encourage us to almost adopt this doctrine of the state into the church and kind of baptize it and talk about it all the time. Now, I say all that because I'm sure it would not take long, even in our current state, to say if a law like this passed, all in California or all churches have turned away from us, which is what Paul says in this text. I know this is a hypothetical situation I'm giving here, but it, you can see it's not far from the truth, is it? We have seen a lot of people at this church. We've done church discipline a lot since COVID. A lot of people walking away from Christ just to chase after the world. Do you imagine how many would walk away from Christ when following Christ really becomes costly? When it would cost your life or your livelihood, your family, your friends. Because that is the exact situation that Timothy is in. Not exact, but pretty close to the situation that Timothy is in here. In Ephesus, Paul is in prison awaiting his execution and all for preaching the gospel and holding fast to the word when many others are falling away. And they weren't just turning away from Paul and walking away from him. They were walking away from the gospel, the church in their, their towns. To the point that Paul says in the, the last chapter in verse 15, you are aware that all, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Now what is Timothy supposed to do in light of that? In light of all this desertion and all this apostasy, what are we supposed to do, even as Christians now, when Christians around us are dropping like flies, walking away from the faith, people that we never thought would leave the church are, are following the world? How do we respond to those things? I think Paul actually gives us an answer in these two verses. And the answer to the question, or really the question that he's answering here is, how should the church respond to apostasy? 
How should we respond as Christians when our brothers and sisters in Christ are walking away from the faith? What should we do? Paul gives us two answers, two responses to that question. And they're probably going to surprise you because they're so simple. The first is draw strength from Christ. Draw strength from Christ and Christian examples. That's in verse 1. Draw strength, be strengthened by Christ. And the second is pass on the gospel message. Pass on the gospel message to faithful men. I know it sounds super simple. Be strong and pass it on. But brothers and sisters, I remind you that even though it's simple, the Lord uses simple, ordinary means all the time to grow us and his church all throughout history. And this is what Paul is calling Timothy to do, and I think also as well calling us to do, even in our current time. So let's begin with the first response. The first response to apostasy is what? Draw strength from Christ. Look at verse 1. You then... I'm going to stop there because I want to make sure you know the contrast. He's, he's setting up a really, really big contrast. He just talked about all in Asia walking away from the faith. They're all, they've all been ashamed of the gospel. They are all unwilling to suffer for Christ. And so now he goes after Timothy and says, not you, Timothy. Not you. You're not going to go that route. And not you, church in Ephesus. And even not you, Christian in Bakersfield at Sovereign Grace. That's not the way... You are called to go. Which way are we called to go? Verse 1 again. You then, my child, be strengthened. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now you have to admit this is a very strange command. When we're commanded something, we're often commanded to actively do something. Here's something you should do. Go and do it. This is a command in the passive sense. Hope you can see that there. Be strengthened. That means it's not something we do ourselves. It's something that's done to us. Almost like a command to receive. That's what Paul is saying here. Let this strengthen you. Or make sure that you are strengthened or encouraged by this. It kind of even sounds funny to our ears because it's like, well, what do I actually do? Just kind of take it? Yeah, that's the idea. And it's not just passive. It's also continuous. So this is a regular, repeated, a, a constant action. So basically what Paul is calling us to do here is continually be dependent. Continue to draw all of your strength, not just every once in a while, but all of your strength from somewhere outside of you. In fact, someone outside of you. I was trying to even think of an illustration that would work here. So I didn't think of a great one, but this is the best one I can come up with. So don't take this too far. But kids, you guys all have those toys that depend on electricity, right? You plug them in, you have batteries, and so on, which are a blast when the batteries are, are charged and they're, they're fully going and you enjoy them. But what happens as soon as the batteries die? Toys basically useless, right? You throw it away or you get rid of it or you just get new batteries. And the idea is the batteries actually make that toy move and go. And this is similar to a sense of what we're talking about here. God is the one who graciously and constantly sustains us. In a way, he gives us a spiritual charge, recharge, in, in, so that we will endure, so that we'll last. Because if he didn't work that strength in us, we're not going anywhere. We will not be faithful. And that's what Paul is pressing Timothy to do here. He's saying the fuel for your fight, Timothy, the strength you need to endure, doesn't come from you. 
It's not something you can muster up inside of yourself. It comes from the outside. And by the way, it's not just something you need now and then when you're weak. No, Timothy, Christian, you are always weak, always dependent. We need this strength constantly. We wouldn't make it one second without being strengthened here by God. And where does that strength come from? We already read it, but let's look at verse 1 again. Be strengthened, and here it is. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, draw your strength from the grace that Christ supplies. Now I would imagine most of us hear that and we think, well, that has to be talking about saving grace in the past. That's Paul saying, well, you know what? He's saying, Timothy, remember what Jesus has already done for you. Right? Jesus has lived for you and died for you and he's risen from the dead. He has saved you, Timothy, from death and judgment. You have eternal life, Timothy, no matter what happens. And the Spirit's making you a new creation. So no matter what happens with Nero and the church and everything else, you have hope, Timothy. And that's true. I believe that's partly what Paul is pressing on here. And that's an excellent thing to remember, especially when we're facing death. And the threat of death or persecution. We need the hope of the resurrection. But I also believe here that Paul is talking about more than just past saving grace. He's talking about sustaining grace. Sanctifying grace. Which is also saving by the way. right? Don't draw a, a sharp line there. God saves us through the cross and through the life of Christ. He is still saving us and he will save us forever. A lot of people, when they present the gospel, they miss one of the most important parts. We say he lived and he died, he rose from the dead, but we often forget the ascension. Where is Jesus right now? He's ascended to the, the Father's right hand. And what is he doing? Is he just waiting around, hoping that we're going to make it? And if we don't, he's got to come down again and encourage us again. No, he is at the Father's right hand right now, ruling and reigning on high, working all things for our good and his glory. He's praying for us. Oh, it means a lot when your parents pray for you and your friends pray for you and the church prays for you. But what about the Son of Man, risen and reigning, praying for you? And the Spirit prays for us as well. We don't even know what to pray, it says in Romans 8. So, all for what reason? So that we are given the strength we need to endure. And the Spirit's work in us to empower us, to make us faithful, to make us fruitful. That's the power we're talking about here. That's the encouragement that Paul is giving Timothy. Be strengthened by the grace that flows from Christ and the Spirit's work in us. Now, where do we receive that? Or maybe even when do we receive this kind of sanctifying and sustaining grace? Well, we receive it in places like right now, corporate worship. We draw near to God. Chad talked a little bit about that this morning. When we draw near to God in corporate worship and we, we hear the word read, we sing the word, we hear the word preached, we see the word in the sacraments, we hear the benediction, all of those things are God giving us strength. Those are the means by which God spiritually recharges us in a way so that we endure, so that we keep walking faithfully. And I would imagine that timid old Timothy would probably ask the same question that most of us would ask. Well, that's all great. I'm thankful that God has promised this grace, but what if it's not enough? 
What if I need more grace? What if grace is just part of what I need? I need something else. What if grace is not sufficient for the challenges and trials and tribulations ahead? I think that's why Paul also reminds Timothy of Christian examples here. Subtly, it's not as clear as just the command to be strengthened, but he he reminds him of how God strengthened saints, saints in the past that were just like Timothy. I hope when you read this command, you realized right away that Timothy wasn't the first one told to be strong, to be strengthened. In fact, I would imagine Timothy is a pastor. He's a man of the word teaching this book. He knows the Old Covenant really well. He'll know that many Old Testament saints were commanded to be strong in very difficult situations, some situations way worse than Timothy. And God sustained them. I would imagine that His mind first went to Joshua when Joshua lost his mentor, Moses, and Joshua was headed into the promised land. Just like Timothy here is going to lose Paul probably shortly after he reads this letter, killed off and never to see again, and he's going to lose his mentor and be on his own. Joshua was in a similar place, headed into the promised land against this terrible odds, and what does God tell him in Joshua 1.9? Be strong. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, Joshua. Do not be dismayed. Do you remember why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And what do we see? The Lord faithfully working through Joshua, empowering him to go into the promised land, to take on the enemies of God and defeat them and bring God's people into the land. God made that happen. He empowered him to do that. Or maybe he thought of Daniel. Daniel living so far away in exile under all these pagan kings and nations, just wondering, Lord, Lord, what are you doing? How are you going to get your people home? How are you going to, to fix all of this mess? And in Daniel 10, God came to Daniel and said this, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, and listen, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, Daniel said, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And God continues to speak and talk about how he's going to fight for Daniel. Look, we could go on and on all through the Bible with so many examples where God said, be strong and then strengthen them. Think of Moses before Pharaoh or Gideon before the Mennonites, but God over and over again commanding to be strong and then providing exactly what he commands. And that's what Paul is pressing here with Timothy. Remember, Timothy. Remember these saints from the past who were commanded to be strong and remember God's faithfulness to them. And we can't forget the very man writing this letter, can we? Paul learned the sufficiency of God's grace through some very terrible set of circumstances. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read a little bit about the thorn in the flesh and listen to his language here and how it relates to this passage. Paul says, To keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave. But he said to me, listen to what God says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. That is insane in the eyes of the world. Boasting in weakness? 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. Why, Paul? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned this lesson through years of ministry, and now he's imparting it to Timothy, his spiritual son. Did you notice that's what he calls Timothy here in this passage, right at the beginning of verse 1? You then, my child. What's interesting about that phrase is it doesn't need to be there. This sentence would be very helpful just by saying, you then be strengthened by the grace of God. Paul did not have to add my child. So why does he? Well, partially because he's passing on the faith here like he talks about in the next verse. But I do think he's also reminding Timothy of their relationship. Timothy, remember what I've taught you. Remember what you've seen in my life and heard from my lips. Do you remember a time in my life, Timothy, where God let me down? Where God's grace wasn't sufficient for all the trials that I've been through? Of course not, Timothy. God has never failed me. And he won't fail you either, my son. So learn this from me. When you are weak, Timothy, when you are weak, Christian, that's when you draw strength from the Lord who is strong. And that's his message here. Now, why does Timothy need to be strengthened? What's the purpose of this strength? To draw strength from Christ and Christian examples. Well, it comes down to the second response to apostasy, which he's being called here on verse 2 to pass on the gospel message Two faithful men. Let's read verse 2 together. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, I've been meditating on this verse all week, and to be honest, the more I thought about it, the more this verse surprised me. I mean, think about it. When you have Christians walking away from the church in massive groups, you expect Paul to say what verse 1 says. You expect him to say, draw strength from the Lord. Endure by the grace of God. Paul's been doing that his whole life, and he's been preaching that his whole life. But you halfway expect, at least I did, for Paul to say something like, get me out of jail. (laughs) Get me out of jail. These Christians are walking away. These are all my spiritual children in the Lord. These are my churches that I've planted. I might be the only one who can bring them back. Get me out of jail as fast as you can, Timothy, because I can fix this. Paul doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, well, it's not going so well. I think it's time for some changes. He doesn't say clearly our ministry model is not working. So maybe we should find a way to get Rome or these Jews to like us. Do a better public relations campaign or something like that. Or find ways to draw people in, to bring those people back. We'll start, stop talking about all the offensive doctrine that they don't like. And we'll we'll start talking about the things they really want to hear. The things they really think they need. Paul doesn't say any of that. What Paul says is, let's keep doing the same thing we've always done. In fact, what he says, we need to pass on the same gospel that put me in prison. We're going to pass on the gospel that caused saints to suffer for generations. That's the gospel we're going to keep on preaching. Look at verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. That's not some secret meeting. That's the public preaching of the word. That's the doctrine of the church from chapter 1. That's the good deposit. 
the, the pattern of sound words that he told Timothy to hold to. The gospel, the, the testimony about our Lord, the very message that put Paul in prison and the message that Rome is seeking to silence. Paul says, yes, that gospel entrusts in trust to faithful men. Now, entrust is a great word here. You could say teach in a lot of ways, but it's so much more than teaching, right? Paul's not saying, hey, just make sure you pass on this information to the next generation. Make sure they all get A's in class and they know this well enough and they'll be fine. No, he's saying entrust. He's saying a lot about the, the role of the pastor, isn't he? Pastors are more like stewards than teachers. Stewards and, stewards and caretakers and custodians of this gospel message. God has given pastors and ministers of the word this incredible gift that's precious to their Lord. And we've been in charge to keep it and guard it and to depart it to other stewards as well. We get this idea of taking care of something precious even by the whole idea of caretaker, don't we? We know that if we, our kids were in trouble and we were going to have a caretaker for them for a period of time, or if uh, we have aging parents or family members, we would get a qualified caretaker, wouldn't we? We wouldn't just rush into that. We would do our homework and make sure they were faithful and trustworthy. And that's what Paul's saying here. Entrust this gospel to who? Faithful men. He doesn't say popular men. He doesn't say gifted speakers those that can draw a crowd and keep a crowd, those that can raise lots of support and lots of money, he says, find faithful men. Really what Paul's saying is, you're a steward of the word, Timothy. Find another steward. Find a, someone else to care for the word and preach the word as you have. And men, like he's already said in the first letter to Timothy, who is not in ministry for their own glory or for a paycheck, like in 1 Timothy 6. A man who meets the, the character qualifications of an elder or a deacon that we saw in 1 Timothy 3. A man who is not ashamed to preach the gospel, even in the face of suffering, as we saw in chapter 1 of this letter. Find a faithful man, faithful to the Lord, is what he's pressing on here. For what purpose? Look at the end of verse 2. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see what Paul is telling Timothy here? He's saying, with all this apostasy and this mess in the church, you want to know what our future is, Timothy? You want to know where it's all going to um, take place or what it's all going to rest on? It's going to rest on passing the gospel on. It's going to rest on entrusting the gospel to faithful men. It does not rest on new doctrine or new ministry techniques or better, like I said earlier, public relations campaigns. And even, I might add, especially for our current context, the future of the church does not rest on facilities or buildings. I know we all want a building. Desperately want a building, a place where we can even control the air conditioning. Not be kicked out during COVID. A place where we can gather and worship and fellowship and not meet at four or five different locations across town. Brothers and sisters, hear me. If the Lord graciously gives us the ability to build a building that's not building the church necessarily the church only grows and builds if christ builds it if god builds it and he will build it how not with facilities only they are very helpful 
but through faithful men. Through passing the gospel on to the next generation. These kids that we have been talking about and praying for and even catechizing this morning. You see even in this text, this this kind of line of faithful men right here. There's four generations in this text alone. Starts off with the apostles. Men like Paul who have been entrusted with the gospel. And then Paul gives it to Timothy. Timothy gives it to faithful men who is going out to preach the gospel to others also. And just think of the hundreds of hundreds of men, the 2,000 years of faithful men, the line of faithfulness to get to this place where your pastors have been entrusted with the same gospel as Timothy and Paul. We preach the same message The Bible, that people, that saints' blood was spilled for and tears were poured out for. We preach the same message. Now, I hope you don't hear that and think, wow, the church is just really good at picking pastors. (laughs) It's not the case. This is not a testimony to our faithfulness in any way. This is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. He's the one that has saved and empowered his gospel ministers for generation after generation so that you and I can hear the gospel and believe. And he's the one to continue that long after us. So brothers and sisters, praise God for this faithfulness. Thank the Lord that after thousands of years, the gospel made it to you. This gospel chain of entrusting the gospel to faithful men continued all the way here to Bakersfield. And pray, please, for us, your pastors, the ones that have been entrusted with the gospel. Pray that we would be empowered by the grace of God to continue to teach and to train and to catechize the next generation. So the church, not necessarily just sovereign grace, but the church continues long after we're dead and in the ground. And God has promised he would do it. And also pray that God would raise up more faithful men and pastors, and preachers to not just preach the gospel around here, but to the ends of the earth. What a privilege it is in this church to send so many people off to the ends of the earth, hoping and praying that these people, people groups will be reached, and we're thankful that we have this track record of God's faithfulness to depend on. There's no way we would send our friends and, and loved ones off to those places if we didn't have this record of faithfulness to lean on. I was really encouraged this week. I heard a story about Sinclair Ferguson, really from, from Sinclair Ferguson when he was a, a very young pastor. Um, you may know this, but he was mentored by another pretty famous Scottish pastor named William Still. Some of you might have heard of his name or maybe heard of some of his books or read some of his books, but when Sinclair Ferguson was a young pastor, he did an internship with William Still as his mentor. And at the end of the internship, he, he came up to William Still with a copy of William Still's book. And he asked this pastor, Still, will you, will you autograph this for me? And it's a pretty interesting story because Still turned to Ferguson. And he pressed his finger into his chest. And he said, young man, I have been writing my name on you this whole time. You don't need me to write it in that book. And I think of that often because that's essentially what we are being called to do here. To write our name on the next generation by entrusting them with the gospel, teaching them the gospel. And yes, first and foremost, that is the responsibility of your pastors. So again, pray for us that we are faithful in that. But all of us, all of us in different ways have the chance to write our name on the next generation. 
Even your moms that are faithful, that are home and, and wondering, what am I doing here? I'm changing diapers all day. I'm frustrated with discipline and all these kinds of things. How am I helping here? You're entrusting the gospel by preaching them and teaching them and catechizing them. And fathers, bringing your kids to church, having them hear the word, teaching them at the dinner table and wherever you go and whatever you do, we are called to do these things to write our name on the next generation. And by God's grace, by the way, by God's grace, Christ has promised to build his church through us. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is our hope. So let's pray that Christ will continue to do that work. Father, thank you for your word and for this wonderful reminder of your faithfulness and our calling. Father, give us the strength that you promised in this passage. Give us what you command to be faithful, to endure in our faith, to trust in Christ, and to entrust the gospel to others, people in the next generation. Lord, we pray that you would continue the church well beyond us in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. When we're long forgotten, Lord, we want your gospel to stand even though we fade away. Pray that you would do this through us because we can't do it in and of ourselves, Lord. Build your church. We trust you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.